what's up, guys? This is Quincy Carr, a.k.a. Quality Comedy King for my clean adult humor. You see me on HBO Max, True TV, also the TV show Living 757 on Cox Channel 60. I'm a proud Navy vet, and uh, I love entertaining people and putting smiles on people's face. Wow. So, okay. So when I started in, well, first of all, I didn't even know that I was going to be a comedian. All right. So all the way back to when I was younger, I would um, turn the TV down. Okay. So I'm from the eighties and the seventies. There was no mute button. It was like, you had to go to the TV and turn the knob all the way down. We, We would put it on national geographic or the animal planet. And I would make my mom laugh by kind of mouthing what I think the animals are saying based on their actions. And I mean, nowadays, that's what a lot of these younger social media style comics are known for now. Like they just have animals and they get all these views and stuff. But I was doing that when I was like seven, eight years old. So I didn't even know I was a comedy fan. I just knew that my mother was a fan of laughing sitcoms and uh, comedy movies. And eventually that bug hit me and I was always watching, you know, sitcoms and all types of stuff. And uh So I was in the Navy. I was a class clown going into the Navy. That's why I barely graduated high school because I was spending so much time trying to make people laugh instead of getting my grades right. I kept people entertained even when I was in the Navy. And when I got out the Navy, I'm in my first civilian job. And this coworker, her name was Trisha Villafranco. She basically said, Quincy, you are always distracting us at work have you ever considered comedy at all? And I'm like, what? Stand up? No, never, never. Now, again, I used to watch all that stuff, but never once did I ever say I would be a stand-up comic or even just on TV or, or an entertainer. So a few, a few months later, we, we, we ended up going to this, um, this karaoke bar in Virginia Beach. I think it's still there called Wannabes. Yeah. That's my favorite place, even though it is definitely filled with rednecks. <laughs> right, right. Well, they were definitely filled with rednecks that night. So our department go, goes there, and it's me and this other uh, Black co-worker of mine. And I'm already feeling uncomfortable. But my uh, department is like, all right, everybody needs to perform. Like, if we're all using time at work, to come here because we made all these sales. I used to work in a telemarketing uh, center and said, because we got all these sales and all these bonuses, our boss is allowing us to enjoy this night. So everybody has to perform. And I'm like, I don't want to perform. I don't want to do all that. It's like, Quincy, you make us laugh anyway. Just it's, it's no different. And I'm looking, nobody in this bar is paying attention. Nobody in this venue is paying attention to anyone going up there singing their songs. You know, like they're still eating their food. They're barely paying paying attention. And it's my turn. And I decided to go with who was my idol since I was younger, Michael Jackson, right? And, you know, and for anybody out out there, I always say this on stage, uh, stop judging that man. Just know that um, he didn't touch all of them, okay? Okay, he, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the truth. It's the truth. Because after he died, a kid said, you know what? My parents made me lie about him. So he didn't touch all of them. Okay, let it go. All right. Anyway, uh, so I said, I'm going to perform. <laughs> I'm going to perform to Michael Jackson and his song Beat It. Not only did I perform 
to that song, I reenacted the entire beat it video. I'm talking about the knife scene. I'm talking about him on the pool table and kicking his leg up and just beat it. Like I did all that. And when I tell you all those rednecks in that bar, I had the attention of the entire place. And when I was done, they're clapping, they're whistling, they're standing up. And I go back to where my uh, group, where, where my department was, was sitting. And this other coworker, he looks at me and says, if you don't take the blessing that God has put on you to be a comedian or at least give it a shot, you are missing your calling. And it was at that moment when I was like, all right, well, I guess I can try it. So uh, a couple of weeks later, I went to the Thoroughgood End Comedy Club and uh, I had to wait three more weeks after I went there to tell them that I want to try comedy. And, and after, three, after three weeks, they wanted to see if I was dedicated or if I was just a person that, that was like, yeah, I want to try comedy. Well, you can't get on. Well, I don't want to try comedy no more, you know. So, uh, so yeah, so I had to come for three straight weeks and then they gave me three minutes. And um, I did my three minutes and that feeling I had in my fingertips was crazy. I've never experienced that, that feeling. Um, Except for that night, it was just like some burning sensations in my fingers. So, yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool to reminisce at how I actually got started. Time plus consistency plus uh, hard work will equal results, but results may vary. So, <laughs> but it will equal results at all times got to keep at it. I do, I do a show every other Monday night. Um, it's my new comedy show project because currently my quality comedy series is in hiatus. Um, I've been doing the quality comedy series since 2010. Started at the Funny Bone and it ended up at Dave & Buster's back in 2017. But because of COVID, I haven't been back into Dave & Buster's. Um, in, in, in Virginia Beach. But you know, I didn't know when I signed up for college at TCC, as Tidewater Community College for anybody not from the area. But I did not know that the very first uh, course I took was going to change my life. I took public speaking. I didn't know why I took public speaking. I had all these other choices and I took public speaking. And I took it because I wanted to overcome the, I guess, the nervousness of talking in front of people if I had to, because I knew that I was going to be a businessman. And I took that and fast forward now, I'm getting ready to perform on stage. So I revert back to some of those things that I learned, because I think I was still in college when I started comedy. And uh, I was in the mirror and I was practicing. And I think my, I can't remember what the third thing was, but I had three bits that I wanted to talk about. One was people in the workplace putting up pictures of their ugly kids on their cubicle. <laughs> uh, the other one was my very first job at Wendy's. And I can't remember what the third one was, but I gave myself about a minute or so to talk about three things. And I can tell you when my name was called, I still remember the feeling I had in my fingertips, like they had a like this burning sensation. I've never felt it since, but it was a burning sensation at my fingertips. And I did that three minutes. I got some laughs. And afterwards, um, the club manager and other comics, hey, man, you look like you got, you, you know, 
what it would take to be up here on stage. Look forward to seeing you again next week. And then from that point, I would just come out every week to get on stage. So you had a mentor, essentially, for the Thurgood House for that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like kind of indirectly, like we worked together at the same job. He at the time was about 12 years in the comedy game. I think he had already been on HBO or some other uh, uh, TV show. And uh, and still to this day, I said, man, you are my mentor, man. Like I modeled my set after how you carried yourself and everything. He said, oh man, stop, man. You use so much further past me. And I'm like, no, man, you don't understand. I will always throw your name in that box. So BD Barnes is the guy that um, I got my, my, my professionalism, um, just how I carry myself on and off the stage. And a lot of my physical comedy uh, got it from, from him. So are you taking on any mentees? Well, it's not that I'm taking them on like, hey, I'm going to mentor you. But I got a lot of comics, including this one comic. Uh, he started, I think, around 2004. And I met him around 2005 or 2006. And at the time, I was starting to grow a little bit of a respectful name in the area. Hey, y'all need to get with Quincy Carr. Like, Quincy is the guy. Da, 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 da. So when he ran into me at the Funny Bone, he said, yeah, you're Quincy Carr? And I'm like, yeah. He said, man, I've been told I need to come talk to you. So fast forward, like, he's done, you know, Comedy Central. Uh, he and I both... Uh, you know, travel on cruise ships around the, uh, around the globe. Um, he's done a bunch of things. He pretty much runs the entire Baltimore comedy scene um, there in Baltimore, Maryland. Like he does the Baltimore Comedy Festival, the DC Comedy Festival. Like he is, he is that guy, but he's still the same way I do B.D. Barnes. Every time he introduces me to somebody, hey guys, this right here, this is my mentor. And he's got guys looking up to him and then he's introducing me as his mentor. And then it's like, dang. And now I'm even looking at it like, wow, like, like I'm humbled by it. So, so yeah, so I don't go out and say I'm going to mentor somebody. I just uh, always leave myself available to the comics if they have questions and that's been the um the reputation i guess that precedes my name it's like yo q is a good guy if you have any questions he's never going to be like nah i don't have time for you you go figure it out like he, he's always going to help you out so that's the person that i i feel like that i am without trying to be well i appreciate that because it can be hard to find a supportive community when you are first starting with this and it yeah that's just comforting to know that you are like that so yeah no problem and you're a comic too or I like to write comedy I have done some open mic nights but it's it's been a while I've been a little bit apprehensive since COVID yeah I understand would you have any advice for people that are just starting uh, the advice will, okay, so I got two sets of advice or two sets of advice. Uh, one is for females. And I tell females this all the time. Number one, it's a male dominated industry, which everyone pretty much knows what entertainment is. It's just over sexualized so much already that when a female gets on stage and especially if she's attractive, and she goes up there and she wants to start talking about sex and 
our body parts and things of that nature. I say, I'm being completely honest. No one is booking you after that because you're funny. They're booking you because they want an opportunity to get with you. That's just the name of the game. And so I have to let females know you need to know and trust who you are. You can still be gorgeous. You, you can still be beautiful. You can still be pretty. You can still be attractive. But if you over-sexualize yourself because you know that's the quick and easy laugh, then just understand how the game works. And it's a male-dominated industry. Chances are the person that can get you to another level is going to be a guy. And that guy, chances are, is not doing it because he's just a good guy. He's doing it with the opportunity that he can get with you. So that's the first piece of advice I always give to women um, in comedy. And the second piece that I give to everybody is don't be afraid to, like, if, if, if you don't feel comfortable cursing or feel comfortable being raunchy, you don't have to do that. So my brand of comedy is quality comedy. And it just stands for, you know, clean adult humor that can go anywhere, right? So I can play at a church and I don't have to switch the church material. I just do my same material. And I may, you know, omit certain things that you know shouldn't be talked about in a church setting, but Overall, I can still have my same jokes work without feeling like, oh, I need to talk about something from the Bible, because there's a lot of comics that will do that. Like they try to morph into every situation. And personally, I think people can sniff that out. So if they know that this is not your lane, yet you're, you're trying to drive in a lane that's not yours, the audience will sniff that out. And if, if you got the it factor then you never look like you're trying. So if you don't have the it factor, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you can't achieve it, but it does mean that you got to work very hard to understand the craft and understand what the genre of comedy is that you want to present and be consistent with. And if you can't do that, then everywhere you go, it's going to seem like, yeah, this person doesn't look like this is what they do. Mm. So, yeah, so that's my advice. Just be yourself, but don't feel like you have to morph into every environment, even if you don't fit in that environment. So I'll give you a quick, a quick little backstory. So at the Funny Bone, they had this night called Apollo Night. And at the time, um, I was still like the Thoroughgood Inn Comedy Club was a mainstream comedy club for a lot of folks out there. Mainstream predominantly means white. OK, it's it's, um, you know, they had some black patrons that would come in there, but predominantly you were groomed to be more of a mainstream comic. And I would then take that and try to go to an all black comedy room thinking that my material that I'm always getting people laughing at easy at this club would just translate. And it wasn't. So I got to the point where I was like, I'm really struggling with the difference between black comedy and white comedy, because I thought that's what comedy was about black comedy or white comedy. And it took this, um, the club owner of the Thoroughgood, he sat me down. He said, that's your problem. You're funny already. You have, what it takes to be on stage, but you think comedy is about color. It's more about you understanding who your audience is 
and then you relating to them without disrespecting them. So I'll give you a quick example. Um, a white comic and a black comic could be performing in a mainstream setting. They come to the stage and their stage presence, the first thing they say is, hey, what's going on, y'all? How's everybody doing tonight? Then same comics, the next show is predominantly, predominantly black. They're looking out there, they say, oh, this crowd is black. I gotta come raw. And when I think about it now, it's so disrespectful to the black uh, connoisseur of live stand-up comedy. And although these platforms have changed lives, you're talking BT Comic View, uh, uh, HBO Dev Jam, Bad Boys of Comedy, all of those kind of set a precedent in the game of comedy that made audiences and comics believe in order to be funny when the, when the crowd is predominantly black, I need to say some MFs. I need to drop some N-words. I need to come harsh. I need to come hard. And that's not the case. So when that club owner was telling me that that's your problem, you think comedy is about color. You have to read your audience, understand the audience, and relate to them without disrespecting them. Because in those black audiences, you've got doctors, you've got lawyers, you've got politicians, you've got, you know, uh, police officers, you got college graduates. So they may laugh at it because a shock word is going to be funny. But if you get a a comic that understands how to still make them laugh without calling somebody out their name, they're going to walk away and be like, that was a good show. So that's what I learned. And then I had to uh, start to understand, okay, I should be able to take my comedy, whether I'm in a church setting, whether I'm in a mainstream setting, whether I'm in a, you know, uh, a predominantly black setting and still get the same type of laughs. If I understand, well, okay, my audience is like this. So let me talk about something that I think the majority of the room would know about just to get them on my uh, side and then go into my comedy that I know works. But I was doing it wrong because I would come into a predominantly black room and I'm doing something really easy that a predominantly white room is going to laugh at. And I was thinking, OK, it's still a joke, so it should be funny. But I'll start off with this. And they looking at me like, no, nah, bro, <laughs> no, I don't know you, man. You, you, you look suspect, man. But a predominantly white audience is going to be like, hey, he's black. Whatever you say is going to be funny. I'm just glad that you're not robbing me. so that's just the idea and so I just got to the point where I was like okay I just had to understand okay so what if I talk about something that they can relate to like something that just happened on mainstream news and then they'd be like oh he knew about that too and now I can go into something that I that I wouldn't have had an opportunity to just start with so just give myself a chance really Interesting. So then it's definitely more than just writing a set. It's really about building a genuine, relatable persona. True. True. Yeah, it's about, well, it's about that, but it's about understanding why you think that joke should be laughed at. Okay. See, so like Kevin Hart had a comedy special some years ago called Laugh at My Pain. That's truly what stand-up comedy is about. A lot of comics are talking about the pains and the struggles. Every now and again, you'll get a lighthearted comic that's just doing complete observational humor, and it's just talking about something that everybody can relate to. So I do a combination of observational humor 
and painful stories that, you know, or painful situations. Like I talk about my stutter. I talk about how funny it is that I stutter and how other people have laughed at me and how other people have perceived that stutter as, oh yeah, this person is not, you know, smart or they're not capable of carrying on a conversation. And so I turn all that into jokes. And so I always say this on stage too, comedy is about 95% real, 5% 5 fabricated. And that's acceptable because sometimes you've got to add a little more. Like I had this joke about these two girls I saw on the Virginia Beach Ocean front that had horrible feet. And I said, one girl had uh, her, her middle toe hung off the front of her uh, flip-flop. <laughs> and it looked like an antenna, like it was that long. And I said, and her friend, she had a pinky toe that hung off the side of the flip-flop like it was the arm out of a car window. <laughs> so technically it wasn't that bad, but I just, I added a little extra oomph to make it funny, but I did experience two women with bad toes. <laughs> so, so I just kind of beefed it up just to give it that, that comedy oomph. Um, so yeah, so I always think comedy is 95% real, 5% fabricated. So if it's coming from your heart, um, you can make it as authentic as you want to make it, but you still have to have laughs per minute, laughs per second. So it can't all be dark and you know, gloomy and, you know, so it's got to have something if you're going to be telling stories. And Cosby, probably not the best example, but um, just based on what he is known for now, but Cosby was so good at jokes, at laughs per second, because he could sit down and just tell you a story. And along that five, seven minute story, you were laughing at all of the things that he's saying as he's telling his story. So that's the difference versus just writing something yeah you know, i bumped my head today okay well what makes you bumping your head that dynamic what were you doing before what were you doing during what were you doing after how did it make you feel what led up to that so it's a bunch of things when it comes to writing jokes okay do you feel like the best way to try to learn your audiences is to just get out there or are there other things that you can do to try to help harness that natural ability to connect well, now, because you're talking to an old school guy, like I'm I'm considered old school because I came up during the age uh, of uh, like when cell phones were just starting to be popular. Um, nowadays, because of the popularity of the smartphone and the access to social media, um, <clears throat> you can build your audience uh, in a totally different way than comics like me were used to. Like we've had to adjust and start putting videos out and start doing things because realistically comedy clubs aren't booking you anymore. Like they said they would back in the day, back in the day, if you were trying to be an MC, you needed to show them that you can have a solid five to 10 minutes, which means you got to keep performing that same set night after open mic night, night after workshop night, and then you'll get an opportunity to host a, a show. Then to move up to being a middle act, aka a feature act, you got to 
expand on that five or 10 minutes to build it to 15 to possibly 25 or 30 minutes, which means when you're hosting shows, you can keep doing the same set or you can give them 10 minutes on one show and on another show, give them a new 10 minutes. That's going to let the club know, you know what? I think audiences want to see more of this guy or more of this girl. Um, So let's bump them to feature. And then to be a headliner, you had to have the ability to hold an audience's attention beyond 30 minutes, all the way up to 45 minutes minimum, okay? Um, And that determined whether you got moved up in the ranks as a headliner. And then obviously, once you get TV credits and all that stuff, then it happens. Now, it's, it's all about the whole business model has changed. The same comedy club that would not book a person because they didn't have enough experience is the same comedy club that's booking all of the comics with internet, social media followers, a hundred plus thousand to a couple of million followers. Why? Because now that cuts down marketing that they got to spend to promote and to advertise because this person is going to get on their platform and say, hey, guys, I'm going to be at this club on this date. I need y'all to come holler at me. And then he's going to have people from all over that would see it and be like, hey, I'm going to be in that city. So that's that's less um, uh, media money that's got to go out to promote, to get people in a club so the people can buy food and drinks because that's really all these clubs are about. They sell food and drinks with a platform for entertainment, but they don't really care if they charge you money at the door. They care to get you in the door so they can sell you the food and drinks. And so comics like me, we've had to rethink how we're going to adjust to this new age because these newer comics they already got the game down. All they got to do, they know how to put the videos out. They know how to work the videos. They know how to gain their followers. And then they just send uh, like agencies and comedy clubs. All they ask you now, if you if you hit them up and say, um, yeah, I would love to uh, perform in your, your club. Well, how does your social media account look? Oh, well, I got, I got about, uh, got about, you know, about 3000 followers. Okay. Yeah. You, you still need to work some. But I got about 300,000. Oh, really? They don't care how long you've been doing the comedy? No. Oh, they say, oh, really? Great. Well, what day are you available? Mm -hmm. So the whole game has shifted completely. So, um, you know, you just got to be able to adjust to the times. I hope I answered your question because I know I go off on a tangent. No, you did. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So you said before that coming to Virginia as a transplant, you didn't really necessarily love it. What was it that really helped to make it grow on you? Because I met who's now my wife. Um, I had never, up until her, I never had a, a steady girlfriend, a steady anybody. Look, I, life was hard for me, okay? I wasn't as, as you know, and, 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 and mind you, I'm not saying this because I'm conceited or anything, but I wasn't as attractive to women as I am now or in my last, what, 15 or so years. So I didn't have women that just threw themselves at me. Like I got friends, like they've been dealing with women all their lives. And I was like, I wish I could turn down some women, but <laughs> you know, like women didn't really uh, throw themselves at me. And I always had the comedic personality. 
So I would always end up in the friend zone, really. Oh, you're so funny. You're so Quincy. You're, you're just so funny. You, you can hang with us because you're so funny. But it wasn't like, oh, my God, you are like hot. I want you. So I never had that. So when I finally uh, met my now wife, you know, like we met on something that's not that's now it's, it's the regular thing to do. But it was called the Norfolk Singles Line. So it was a phone line and women um, would, I think they had the option to sign up for 30 days and pay $15. Men, we could sign up for 30 days, but we had to pay $30. And I was like, all right, I'm tired of going to the clubs and seeing the same women. I'm going to try this thing one time. I'm going to try to rack up as many women as I can. <laughs> Cause that was my goal. I want to get as many for $30. I better get 30 women out of this thing. Right. And then I can just scale it down there. But I started telling myself, I said, I want to find, I want to find a, a, a main woman, a main girl. I've never had that. And uh, so that's what I got out of that. And what, 25, 24, 26, how long? 23 years later. I mean, we've been married for 18 years, just celebrated uh, 18 years um, a few weeks ago. So, yeah. Yeah. So that was one of the main reasons why. And the other reason, as I mentioned at the top of the show was um, I'm a middle child. So I always do things going against the grain because nothing was ever given to me. So I I felt like it would be too easy if I just went back home because then it would be easy to fail or to just not try hard. But I said, if I stay out here, number one, I can keep my those family members that were just always hey can I borrow hey can I have hey do you have this and I said at least I'll be long away so the closest they can get to me is a phone call and and even then back then in the late 90s you had to pay a long distance charge (laughs) so yeah yeah so those are the reasons why I just wanted to make it of course I, I met who's now my wife of 18 years so what do you two like to do when you have free time together that's very personal uh, that's fair <laughs> <laughs> no we she actually laughs more like, like it's interesting because she was with me from the very beginning from the time I think about a year and a half after I met her I told her yeah I'm, I'm gonna try this stand-up comedy thing I'm not gonna make a career of it but and you know folks ask you try it so I'm gonna try it so she's been with me from the very beginning to to where I am now. And she's what she calls herself a comedy snob. So she can watch comedy and break it down and not laugh at it and know why it's not funny or, you know, or do just the opposite. And then of course people say it, I think just to hurt my feelings, they'd be like, yeah, the real comedian in a relationship is her. Be like, would you stop mama? Stop. Okay. I'm I'm your son. (laughs) You don't have to try to hurt me every time. So, yeah, uh, but we we enjoy uh, laughing. We enjoy watching things with um, with comedy in it. Um, And now we raise our daughter and we don't do a lot of like just me and her time as much as a lot of couples um, that we know do. Um, We we always seem to bring our daughter with us or when when we experience new things, we always have our daughter. So we both have the same mindset of making sure that we give her the experience. And and it's not just us just saying, look, 
we're married. Let's just, you know, leave her there. Let somebody babysit her and let's just do our thing. So we always make her a part of our lives. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Where's your favorite area out here? I really don't have one. I'll be honest. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, cause it's the seven cities, all the cities are connected to each other. My favorite area, I'll be honest, Vanessa, my favorite area is probably anywhere where I can go and uh, put on a show and and I can build something out of that area where folks say, okay, yeah, that, that's where Quincy does his shows. It's, yeah, it's weird. Like, I don't go out much. Like, I don't even have the guys. Like, my wife jokes me all the time. She's like, you ain't got no friends, man. Like, you, you like, you, you know, you know, like most guys is like, hey, I'm going to hang with Craig or me and him is going to go up to the bar. And like, I don't do any of that. Like, if I'm not at home, I'm not at home because I'm out, especially now as an entrepreneur, uh, a full time entrepreneur, I'm out working or I'm out uh, building or growing an opportunity that does something in the future. But I don't do a bunch of of uh yeah i'm just gonna go chill and just take a couple of beers to the head I, i've never done that um and so i don't really have any favorite places uh to go i just i just go places and if it's fun it's fun so you're more of a homebody then i'm more of a boring person if that's what you, <laughs> if that's what you're getting at if that's you're in good company body. here <laughs> yeah. yeah just uh um yeah i'm not a like like, I'm not a drinker, but for years I was always saying, I don't drink. I don't drink. Well, you know, uh, 22 years in the comedy game and, of course, being on cruise ships and those comics out there. And they'd be like, man, you're going to take a shot. So then I just got to the point where I said, OK, I don't go anywhere with the idea that I'm going to order a drink. If I go somewhere by myself and somebody asks me, what do I want to drink? I'll order a ginger ale and cranberry. But if I'm with somebody and they want to buy me a drink, then I'll, I'll at least not be disrespectful and I'll, and I'll take the shot or I'll take the drink. And yeah. And sometimes, you know, alcohol does taste good, but then there's a lot of times where it just tastes bad. And I'm like, why do people love this stuff? This is disgusting. So, yeah. So I'm just a boring, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a workaholic um, that doesn't, think about taking vacations I'll put it to you that way like that's the best way to describe me some people are quick to want to plan vacations because they work and they're just looking for an escape to just take a breath and that's my problem I never look for an escape to take a breath because I love doing what I do so much that I just I just want to keep doing it and I don't think but when I do take a vacation credit to my wife when I do take a vacation I at least will um, commit to not picking my phone up or, you know, trying to do some work related and I'll just chill. So I can go dormant without posting and doing stuff on my phone. But um, unless I'm forced, ooh, yeah, I will head down and I'm working. You, you, you know how crazy it was? So on my first cruise ship, it took me, I started doing cruise ships in 2018 and I would piss my wife off because on one hand, okay, <laughs> My husband is gone. And on the other hand, he's gone, but he's working. And then on the other hand, there's like three hands here. And then on the other hand, uh, he's vacationing for free. 
And then there's another hand. And then on the other hand, she's pissed because when she talks to me, said, so what did you do today? I just chilled in my cabin. I didn't. So are y'all at sea? No, no, I just, you know, I just didn't want to get off the ship and go look. So you're over in Alaska, you're over in the Bahamas and you're over in other, and you're not getting off the ship. Are you kidding? Like it would piss her off. And so in 2019, when I went to Spain, that was the first time that I really enjoyed getting off the ship and uh, just exploring and once I did that, every cruise after that, I started taking advantage of just I'm getting off the ship today, you know, or, you know, I'm gonna go explore these islands. Or I'm gonna go do some, I'm gonna go do an excursion, you know, and now I can appreciate those times because I am working, but truthfully, I'm doing about in seven days at sea, I'm doing maybe three hours of work. What? Yeah. And, and that <laughs> includes all my performances. So I'm like, what are you doing, man? Like, are you really going to ruin your experience of traveling to places you never would have gone before had it not been for the cruise ship? So, uh, so now I will vacation, but again, I don't, I'm, I've never been the person that's, that, that plans to take time off. It just happens. And then I take time off. That's how I am too. And it, it definitely frustrates your significant others. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. Can I ask you what when your birthday is? Yeah, uh, it just passed. It was August 19th. Oh, okay. Leo? Huh? I guess that makes you a Leo. I oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. King of the jungle. There you go. <laughs> me, oh, King. me, Tom Brady, uh, President Obama, uh, just anybody who is a person that's just like a leader or a person that's always seemed to be controlling, I am now brothers or 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 related to those individuals and and we can't help it people so for those who get mad at leo's you always got to be in control you're always trying to take over stuff it's just a part of our nature <laughs> sorry so that being said how did living 757 start that was crazy so Living 757 uh, is a local lifestyles and entertainment TV show um, similar to like the Hampton Road show or Coast Live on Channel 3. And that relationship for that opportunity started in 2014 um, when I, um, I decided to film my own TV show, my own comedy stand-up TV show, and I did it at the Funny Bone. And when I filmed it and I got it, I got it edited down. Uh, I was trying to put it on TV, but obviously not pay a lot of money. So my choices were, I think, Channel, uh, what, Sky 4, and then Cox, Cox 11. Now it's Cox 60, but Cox Channel 11. And Sky 4 was going to charge me money to put it on. And Cox 11 said, you know, we'll, we'll put it up if it's nicely done and nicely edited, if it looks professional. And I was like, cool I'm gonna go that route right there so because uh, back then I think they were still trying to transition over but they were still kind of looked at as a local access tv channel mm -hmm. now they're under a platform a network called your view and so they, they house multiple shows so they don't accept projects like mine and looking back at it I mean like at the time because I released it in 2015 and uh it ran and the producer who 
approved it, his name is Will Rodriguez. And then I had also got asked to uh, try to um, audition for a TV personality in sports or something, uh, maybe a year or so after that. And, and we joke about it now, be like, you, you, you didn't pick me, man. You know, I went in there, you told me where all producers always say, oh, you, it was great. Uh, we'll be in touch. Right. <laughs> and I didn't hear anything. So this was 20, what was it? 2019. Right. I'm sitting at home and I'm going through some old, man, this is crazy. I've never told this story, but I'm, I'm going through some old emails and old contacts. And I'm like, let me start, it's, you know, it's time to purge. And I'm getting ready to purge. And I'm, I come across his contact. And I said, yeah, like, I haven't talked to him since I gave him my show. And then they stopped running my show because they said that they couldn't continue to run uh, reruns, the same stuff until I gave him some new stuff. And I said, you know what? Delete. When I tell you five minutes later, I get boom on Facebook Messenger. It's him. And he goes, hey, Quincy, um, I have an opportunity for you that I would love to discuss. And I, I think that you would be interested uh, if you can give me a call back at this number. And, it, and I'm telling you, Vanessa, I looked at my computer and I looked at my phone and I saw the and I'm like, something is going on here because I hadn't thought about him. I hadn't talked about him. I hadn't done anything ever since that audition. And I just happened to come across his contact. And I'm like, yeah, the last time I sent something to him was back in 2016 about my show. Here it was 2019. And I hit delete. And then he sends me a message about five minutes later. And then I give him a call. And he, and he says, hey, Quincy, uh, it's been a while. Um, we've got a show. Um, a new show. We're getting ready to put it on. And this is going to be Cox is getting behind this show 110% uh, to compete with the other lifestyles and entertainment shows here in the area. It's called, well, they didn't have a name yet. So, and they said that we're looking at you at being one of the three personalities. And I'm like, get the hell out of here. I literally just deleted you from my contacts and you're calling me so I said, did you by chance get a notification? And so he said, no, no, it just, like I was talking to, um, who's my other co-host, her name is Patricia. And um, they were talking about a male uh, personality. And they said, but we want a funny personality. And she threw my name out there because me and her had just done a project. And we'll go, oh my gosh, that's right. Like, Quincy Carr, yeah. And he, and he said, that's how I called you. And of course, he, he told me about a year or so later, he said, look, don't think that I, I, I forgot about you. I've been wanting to work with you since you sent us that TV show that you created. I thought it was funny. I thought it was well thought, thought out. And I could tell that you're a good comedian. So all of that went back to 2014. And that's how Living 757 came about. So for anybody that's out there, if you think nobody's watching, you know, take your opportunities and try to do 
do the best that you can. Never give somebody half tail work, like do it the best of your ability. And you never know people are watching you. They may not say something. They may not, you know, be hitting you up or following you and commenting on every single thing, but people are watching you. And that was literally five years in the making. So that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. I never told that story either. That's crazy. My favorite question I ask everybody is how do you recognize someone from this area? The word uh, won't. That's a word that's used a lot. Won't like, like instead of saying that wasn't right, they say that won't right. (laughs) (laughs) That won't right. Be like, won't is not like, that's not correct English. That, that wasn't right. And even yeah, yeah, won't is not right, but they that won't right. So yeah, that's one way. That uh jank, if they say jank, like yo, that jank crazy. Be like, hold up, you're Caucasian. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> Be like, hey man, I'm trying to tell you, man, that jank crazy. <laughs> so jank and won't. I think those those are the two of the main ones. Okay. Outside of a few curse words that they always Yeah. <laughs> and people have said this multiple times now. If you wear vans and shorts in the wintertime, you're probably from Virginia Beach. Really? Yeah. Wow. I figured like if you wear shorts during the wintertime, um, you probably come from a colder climate where Virginia. So me being in boot camp in Chicago and Great Lakes were right by Lake Michigan. And when I went to boot camp, it was the week before Christmas. So in the midst of the summer. So when I tell you I was marching and doing everything and weather I had, and temperatures I had never experienced, I'm talking 10 below, 15 below, um, like that was no joke. But they also get full time summers. So I always said that Chicago gets all four of their seasons are real. But that winter ain't no joke. So when I'm, you know, like when it's 55 degrees here, I can go outside with a T-shirt on and, and feel cool. And they'd be like, oh, it's cold out here. Be like, to you, this is summertime in Chicago. <laughs> like, this is summertime weather in Chicago uh, during the winter time. So, yeah. Yeah. But I've never heard vans and shorts. That's that's an interesting one. <laughs> this is a boardwalk thing, I guess. Yeah. Uh, your show that you did at the funny bone was it like a sitcom show no so it it was stand up along the level of a stand-up comedy show for for a 30 minute time slot so i would come out so essentially the idea was late night uh talk show no i'm sorry live stand-up comedy meets a late night talk show so i would come out and do a monologue like a Jimmy Fallon or something. And then I would uh, go to commercial break, come back from commercial break. I would be in the audience. So like, I don't know if you remember Arsenio Hall back in the day, Arsenio would introduce like a music act or somebody that was going to be on the center stage from the audience. And so then I would go to, to the audience and say, all right, Hey, so we're back from commercial break. You having a good time? Somebody be like, yeah, be like, all right, well, we're going to enjoy this next person. Y'all make some noise. This person's coming from all around. Y'all give it up. And so for the viewers, they saw me in the audience and then I would introduce the comic and then the comic would come on the stage instead of it being like, I'm on the stage 
hey, y'all ready for the next comedian? And then I shake the comedian's hand. And so I didn't want it to feel like a stand-up show that I'm trying to put on TV. So I wanted it to feel like it was a late night talk show meets live stand-up comedy. And that was the feel that it had. And then after that comic finished, I would come on the stage and be like, hey, did y'all enjoy them or her? And they were like, yeah, be like, all right, great. So after these messages, we'll come back so we can hear more about this person. And when we come back from commercial break, I had these two director's chairs and we would be on the stage and I would give them an interview. So it would be, it would have that real talk show feel with the stand-up spotlight being on them and then they would get interviewed after that and I would have you know like I would do my re research I would put these questions together and you know I have, have my little card and I'd be like so talk to me about when you know in 1998 when you did this and, and it would be a story or something that they could really jump on but I would give them those questions just so they can be prepared and then it was just some um kind of you know, improvisational moments and stuff that would come out of those. But I mean, like looking back at it, it's a format of a show I think would work with the right money behind it. I just didn't have the resources to do it all again. So I just did six episodes of it. So, oh, wow. That's really yeah. awesome though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would love to bring it back if I have, if I had the resources to bring it back, I would definitely bring it back. But I think it would be a hit because, I mean, people love the concept. It, it was it was just that it had that feel like it was it was kind of polished, but it just wasn't really, really polished. But it was polished enough that when the producer who's uh, who eventually hired me for Living 757, when he saw it, he looked at it as this is not just a, some little local project like this. This thing looks like it was really done. Like I had an intro to the show and everything. Like it had a real feel, credit scrolling up at the end. So it did not look corny. It didn't look local. It looked like I had some, some resources behind me, but all in all, I was doing everything. I was performing. I was writing. I was hosting. I was directing. I was uh, uh, a part of the editing process, sitting with the editors and all. Yeah, so... It, yeah, it was a lot of energy that had to be expended. So if I were to bring it back, I would definitely need a team of people to do it. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, that would be incredible. Yeah. That sounds like it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. It definitely was. Uh, like, it taught me a lot. It, you know, it taught me that anything you want, you can do if, if you are true to it and if you stick to it and if you remain consistent. Because a lot of people have ideas, but they don't follow through those ideas. So those ideas just end up being smoke that just, it, it was a thought in their head and it just went into the air. And anytime I think something, no matter how crazy it is, as, as I mentioned, I'm a middle child. So instead of doing things the easy way, I say, look, nothing was given to me. Everything I had was earned. So I'm going to I'm, I'm going to go a route that other people have seen as a challenge and I'm going to overcome that just so they can say, dang, Quincy did it. Mm -hmm. So if that helps with validation, I guess that's my problem. I need validation. <laughs> that mental most of us tend to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you have any upcoming events? 
Um, so I travel a national comedy series called Back to Laughs, uh, me and a, a streaming platform partner um, uh, of TGXLive.com. Um, I put my comedy special that I filmed back in 2016. Like I was the first person in this area to shoot and get a comedy special picked up for distribution. Like I shot it in Virginia Beach. Like nobody had ever shot a comedy special in Virginia Beach, but I did. And it got picked up for distribution. I didn't make much money, if any money, off of it. But then about a year and a half ago, um, I gave it to TGX Live, and they've been running it on their platform. And I can make a little money off of that if people buy the streams. Um, but we've, uh, you know, just through the pandemic, because 2020 came, and everybody had to readjust, right? So I even created an, uh, a virtual talk show called quality comedy time with Quincy. And that's when I said, look, man, me and some people in the industry are in the same position. We are all not working. So instead of sitting here, not doing anything, I got a connection with a lot of people in the industry. So I was like, let me reach out to my folks and say, Hey, look, can you give me about an hour of your time? And so it was like this, but it was a visual and we stream live to Facebook. And it was just quality comedy time where we just comics or me and another um, entertainer just talking and um, people would tune in and check it out and comment and, you know, love it. Then I would give away, you know, some prizes and stuff uh, just to make sure I have more folks in. So um, I haven't done that one since we've been back to performing again, but this traveling comedy show, um, we started out going out to California in July. And then we lost that venue. There was a fallout between some promoter there and the uh, venue manager. So I was like, gosh, that affected us. So we still take it to Charlotte. And we're looking to expand uh, beyond Charlotte into um, my hometown, uh, Austin, Texas, uh, Houston, and other stuff like that. So right now, my national comedy series called Back to Laughs, just getting the country back to laughing again, hopefully coming out of this pandemic better than we went into it. And so that's the whole idea about that. Uh, thank yeah. you so much. Ashley Smith Dennis, uh, me and her are cool. And we did an interview and well, it was for a segment. She was so smooth at how she did it. She, 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 she said, Quincy, um, I know I have a few questions to ask, but I'll ask questions like da 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 da. And so then I'll just start answering it. And she'll, she'll be like, okay, yeah, that's good. That's good. So when it came to this, da da da, I'm like, did you just sneak the interview on me? And, you know, so I guess it's a really good help, but that's a really cool technique. I don't know if you did that on purpose or if you, or if that just happened, but it's really smooth because it makes people who may not be comfortable. Like if they don't think the camera's on, then they're just going to be themselves, right? And as soon as, they, okay, I'm going to start recording now. Don't get nervous and let's go. And then it'd be, uh. <laughs> so yeah, well, yeah so that you, was that's... cool. That was brilliant. Thank you. Brilliant. Started a new comedy night. It's called the Comedy Spotlight. And that's at Boyle Bay Seafood City in Norfolk. I think they got multiple locations here in the Hampton Roads area, but this one is the one in Norfolk near Military Circle Mall. And every other Monday, um, this platform is meant to allow the uh, working slash professional comics 
to have a platform to perform. Because for the comics, the, the working comics, our work week typically starts anywhere from Thursday to Friday. And it always ends on Sunday, right? So I was like, if I create a night on the Monday night, that means that a comic could, like a working comic, not an open micer, but a working comic can come on, hit the paying audience with some professional material and some A-list funny stuff. Yeah, you know, and just give the crowd something to enjoy and something to laugh at. So, uh, but that's every other Monday. And it started in July, July the 12th. And so it's going down every other Monday. My next show actually is uh, October, Monday, October the 11th. And the next one after that is October, Monday, October the 25th. Thank you.